0: Welcome to a conversation of change with Dr Jen Fram, where we talk all things leadership, change and transformation. And hello everybody, it is Dr Jen from here again on another Conversation of Change. I have got some breaking news for you at the moment you are of the first to know that there is another Dr Jen Fram book coming out. Um, And now that I've said it out loud, it really has to happen. I've just made it be truly, truly accountable. Um, So, yeah, I'm really hopeful that uh, at the beginning of next year, early next year, you'll have a book called Change Leader. It's an instruction, not just a role. One of the chapters that I've got in this book coming up is the most difficult changes to do, being leading change through uh, gender equality, climate change and anti-racism in organisations. So I thought the really sensible thing to do, um, perhaps the lazy thing to do, is to perhaps record some of the interviews I'm doing with some of the specialists in the field around this. Um, This has been a period of learning for me in this space. This is why it is the last chapter in the book. It is the one that I know the least on. But nevertheless, I felt it was the most important. So it is my very, very great pleasure to introduce you to Michelle Redfern. Michelle is the founder of Advancing Women. She provides research and advisory on gender diversity, Uh, diversity and inclusion she's the founder of women who get it which is a professional career network co-founder of a career that soars she's a non-executive director she has awards coming out of her ears left right and center michelle welcome to conversations of change well thank you
1: dr jen it's wonderful to be here and if you kept going like that the screen wouldn't have been big enough to fit my head on
0: Possibly so. Michelle, tell us a little bit about uh, your background. How did you come to be working in this space, to be an expert in gender equality?
1: So how I came, I think it was always meant to be, Jen, but like a a lot of other people, I had to go on the journey. Uh, So I had a a fairly long and uh, arguably successful career in corporate Australia and for a number of different organisations. People can see my LinkedIn for that. I'm not going to bore them with it now. Um, But I would say that over the course of my career, a couple of things characterised that career, particularly my leadership career. One was creating environments where people could be themselves and really thrive. And the second was that I am a Died in the war feminist and have been since I was born. And I have never really understood why women couldn't do whatever the bloody hell they wanted to do. And I was I kind of bumped up against that in my career probably a little bit later than, than people would imagine, uh, but I bumped up against it n- nonetheless. And it was about the time when you and I first met. that yeah. I suddenly went, oh, goodness, there's no Messiah coming. It does appear to be up to me. So I said about... Doing something about what I saw as a an issue, both a social justice issue and an issue for business, uh, more, more broadly, and said, "Right, this is this is finally I've worked out what I'm going to be when I grow up at the grand old age of forty something." So hmm, that, that's <laughs> that's how I came to be uh, in, in the abbreviated version. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's terrific, and I, I think um, I think for many of us, that how did we come to be often isn't before that. So you know, I think there's plenty who can relate to that, and and you know, I, I did want to to say and acknowledge um, one of the reasons why I wanted you on this show. Um, and to talk to you about this was not just your expertise in the area of gender equality, which, you know, um, you've been extraordinary in your efforts in, but also as a leader of change. You are correct. I did work with you um, in our way back distant past and um, you're one of these leaders of change that I will follow forever. So thank you for your efforts in that space.
1: Well, that is is very kind and, and back at you. Without, you know, turning this into a mutual admiration society, I certainly, I really, I appreciated the things that you taught me particularly at the time um, if I reflect on the time when you and I first met I I was navigating probably one of in hindsight probably one of the most difficult leadership roles I ever had uh, you know very stakeholder heavy environment that's a nice way to put it um, and you were able to well not only be a sounding board and, and certainly an ally but I would you were able to give me some practical tools and ideas about how to navigate change and not not just, you know, I'd always consider myself to be a very, very good uh, change agent or agent of change. I actually really enjoy change. Um, but one of the things I learned over time was that not everyone's like me. Amazing. It's probably a good thing and that I needed to understand through using empathy and having different techniques and tools and approaches uh, and learning, learning to learn from experts like you that I could help people navigate change a lot better. Um, so
0: thanks to yeah. you for that. Oh, you're very welcome. And you've just written the preface for the, for the book. Thanks. That's <laughs> exactly it. So good job. Good job. Okay. Go um, Michelle, so pretty much all organisational changes start with some version of a current state and a future state with an understanding of what the delta is, what's the size of the change to bridge that gap. Can you paint us a picture of what that situation is like today, November 2020, with regards to gender equality in the workplace? Yes, I can. Um,
1: so if... if I was to say to you that, well, I I can say to you that my purpose is to contribute to creating a gender equal world so that uh, we could look at it in a binary sense. So when we talk about gender, I, I will deliberately talk men, women, when, of course, that is not... Just the case, but I don't want to get into a long detailed um, discussion about uh, gender. So if we were just to look at the binary um, version of gender, 50-50, all right. So we want equal numbers of men and women in workplaces at every level across the world. Um, we certainly want uh gender balance on boards and in an executive teams. So what's the if that's the desire? Um we are a fair way away from that so that the the desired state and the current state the delta is pretty big so and look at and it depends on which geography you're in which sector but broadly speaking roughly give or take uh in for a ceo for example there's roughly 10 percent female ceos in australia so that's a it's a fair way to go boards we have roughly, but although we're stagnating and now starting to see uh, numbers go or retreat, we have roughly 29 to 30 percent women on boards. Um, now, when you start to, and then in executive leadership, dominated by men, so we have roughly uh, 75 or between um, 70 and 75 percent of leadership roles at executive level are occupied by men. What we can also do is overlay that with the intersectionality. So other, so if we look at women and men of colour, massively underrepresented. Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, women and men, underrepresented. Uh, people with, uh, who identify as having a disability, massively underrepresented. And that's important to, to reflect on because there is no business in anywhere in the world that doesn't have a consumer of some description. And companies who are not yet gender balanced, not yet culturally diverse, uh, not yet uh, representative of society are less likely to be representative of their consumers. Therefore, the folk that buy their goods. So there's a whole bunch of stuff, but that was a long answer. But um, current state, uh, non-mature, desired state, long, long way away.
0: Okay, I'm curious then if we think about the rationale for creating change or or you know what 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 is it going to take to change those numbers around? Are the drivers primarily economic? so is there an ROI on um, a gender balanced organization? Is it justice based is it humanitarian? is it you know what are the primary drivers? And I guess maybe there's an assumption behind this question is, you know, what should they be versus what are they really?
1: Yeah. And, you know, what's been really interesting, even in the time, the four or five years since I've been doing this work in a dedicated form, the focus has shifted very much from, you know, the business case for gender diversity or for gender balance in organisations has been written and proved for close to 30 years. And so has the data been available and, 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 and. and. So, So one could argue that whilst the business case, and certainly I can remember developing my fair share of business cases to promote more women into leadership or to have women developed, blah, blah, blah. One could argue that the business case, therefore the drivers, the financial, the economic drivers are not, the ones that make a difference, um, that it's it's actually more of a social justice, the right thing to do driver. And more and more, the conversations that I'm having with, with my clients, uh, with, with colleagues, um, with across sort of all facets of society have shifted to the right thing to do. And our right as a good corporate citizen to play in the playgrounds that we play in means we've we've got to look like this, sound like this and be a a lot more representative of those that we serve. Now, whether those that we serve are investors, shareholders, people, customers, it's it's simply those three or stakeholders in the case of For Purpose, but the, the, the language and the tone and the emphasis has absolutely shifted to what is the right thing to do. For me, very, very pleasing uh, now, I am no Pollyanna. there are still a lot of folk out there who want to see what the return on the investment is. and I am, I am much more adept. I can get, oh, look I can do a business case till the cows come home, but thankfully, I haven't been asked to do one for probably three years. Um, but I am far more adept at having a conversation about let's have a talk with your board about your risk and opportunity register. What does that look like? Because when the optics around your organisation are held up for, or when when the numbers, the composition, the, the way you do stuff as an organisation is held up in the cold, hard light of day, does it stand up to scrutiny across a whole bunch of different parameters? And so that's pleasingly for me where the conversation has shifted. Now, I'll take a step back and contradict myself now. And I, will, I, I actually say to, to organizations, you've got to be much cleverer about the way you invest. And to get the return on the investment when it comes to inclusion, diversity and equity in workplaces. Stop spending money on dumb stuff because um, the dumb stuff is the off the shelf. Let's sheep dip. I'm a sheep girl dip. from... Yep, let's sheep dip everyone through the same program. Let's all go to unconscious bias training because gee whiz, that's really going to help. Said no one ever. Well, ex- except the people who sell unconscious bias. I was going to say,
0: except for the consultants. who yeah.
1: Selling <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So... The conversation has shifted, Jen. I don't know. I don't know that those that are still over reliant on qu- quantitative data and quantitative proof points have been managed through the change to get to what's the qualitative um, data that supports our decision. How do we how do we measure success in perhaps a different way than we have done for the last? 100, 200 years for an organisation. And we've seen that in, in, you know, just this year, the, the, I guess the bad behaviour stories that have bubbled up through the press, particularly in Australia, you know, there are three fairly high-profile for-profit organisations, and of course, our federal government has uh, been in the spotlight just in the last week around behaviour and how it is becoming less and less tolerable or acceptable for behaviour that was tolerable and acceptable. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not stomached. That's actually not even a word. It's not tolerated. It's not accepted. It's not, it's just not the dumb thing anymore. And it's, and these companies are now being held to greater levels of accountability and are scrutinised. You know, the wonders of social media, the wonders of technology, data, freely available data um, mean that there's a whole lot more stuff visible to people outside of organisations, which is creating different uh, uh, the opportunity
0: to look, feel, think, do in different ways now. See, this is really interesting. This is one of the things I want to pick up in the book as the reason why as leaders of change we need to change is the shift in power dynamics, how, you know, and um, Hyman's and Tim's talk about um, old power and new power, So, you know, we'd equate it to the patriarchy and um, the senior white male in the organisation having all the power to now the power has shifted to um, the populace, the communities, the customers, those kind of things. Um, And Brené Brown talks about power over versus power with and power within. So it, it feels to me what you've spoken about there is a really good example of how we've seen the shift of yeah, you can give me the economic business case, but power over tells me I'm still going to preserve the status quo. Mm-hmm. In recognising that the power has shifted, which is quite an optimistic story,
1: mm.
0: that's been the the driver of change. Yeah.
1: Um, and, and, I mean, there, there are still absolutely uh, positive economic outcomes or positive financial outcomes to achieving... More equity in workplaces and, and society, and <clears throat> pardon me, and, and I still I, I will go back to a, a couple of those. Um, at an economic, you know, macroeconomic perspective, we know that um, simple shifts in workplace participation by women can contribute to GDP. Mm. Now, the simple math is: if women work more, they earn more, and when they earn more, they spend more because women. Are typically, and and I, I, I'm very careful about using the word typically, even though I use it, um, because there are, you know, there, let's just say the great many, um, women are in, heterosexual, families or family units, are the decision makers or the key influencer for consumer spending in that household, to a to the tune of between seventy five and eighty percent. So if if she is earning more, and she's going to spend more, and therefore consumption goes up, and when consumption goes up, investment goes up, and we all know that—well, many of us know the the GDP calculation. So there's a really, for me, there's a very simple um, economic outcome. So what do we need to do to do that? We need to create the opportunity for more women to participate. And for me, it's always about choice, the opportunity for women to participate in the workforce in a way that works for them and those that they care about. Um, so, you know, that's the the structural side of things and this is why the debate around universal childcare and uh, access to childcare uh, is so, so important and it's a front-end investment by courageous governments uh, because they understand that in the long term that's going to create a very very strong knock on a, a positive knock on effect to the economy from a workplace perspective there is no race for talent anymore it's a war for talent and the war for talent for the best and brightest people for the whatever widgets your organization makes is well and truly on and Interestingly, I was on a call earlier today and I said, you know, who is the most powerful, apart from um, women having decision-making, but the biggest consumer group ever in uh, in the history of the world right now are millennials, you know. Love them or hate them, I love them. Um, but, you know, who, millennials, of which both my children are, they are upwards of 35% of, of the universe. They have more disposable income than they've ever had before. And they are a very powerful consumer. They're also a very powerful employee. And they want different experiences, different life and career experiences from their employers than my generation did.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, how do you attract, engage, and advance the best and brightest talent? You're going to have workplaces that work.
0: Yeah.
1: And workplaces that are homogenous. And perhaps in that you know the the power that coming back to that, those power dynamics where the power is all at the top of the triangle and there and there's a, a great sense of disenfranchisement at the bottom of the triangle, not going to work. So there's an economic argument around equity, inclusion and and, and balance across the genders in in organizations because pa- those people want to work in in places that are overtly committed to creating those places. And if they're not, it costs a lot of money Attr- attrition turnover costs costs organization really a does. lot of money
0: yeah and i guess that that kind of leads into the question around what are the most effective change interventions in the organization so you you could argue recruiting is an important change intervention because you know you're getting in from that level we know that sheep dipping putting people through you know their two day workshops in um unconscious bias etc that kind of thing does not have a lasting effect mm-hmm. what are the effective change interventions in organizations around you
1: know what i'm going to give the strategist's answer which is it depends <laughs> Uh, so, throw me some a, scenarios. All right. So, one size doesn't fit all. So, before any organizational or leader says that's what I'm going to go off and do, you have got to uncover and discover your brutal truths. So that the current state. And I am still surprised at the amount of potential engagements that I get, where people say, "I'd like you to do this for us." So, why are you doing that? Um, have you done the diagnostic? What's your current state? Isn't that what's always done? Unconscious bias training, mentoring for women, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, that might be the case, but I don't think you actually know what the problem is that you're trying to solve. So let's assume that the diagnostic's been done and the organisation knows what problem um, there is to solve. The reality is one and done is not enough. This is a a continual process. Now, let me use a funny analogy here, which I don't know if my children will ever listen to your podcast, Jen, um, but if they do, they will squirm. It's a little bit like talking to your kids about sex. So I did not have the talk with either of my children what I did was answer questions and be there and triage their curiosity on an ongoing basis right through to then creating interventions. Dear son, you will take a condom with you to that party. Oh my God, mum, you are so embarrassing. So the reality is it's constant. There's a constant flow of information. There's constant access to resources, to tools, to experts and to those that help us navigate what will be the uh, potentially... Biggest step change, uh, as in those really uncomfortable bits around change that you, you will tell us better than I can, Jen, that we're all biologically programmed to resist like hell. Um, but the reality is it's got to be constant. What does that mean practically? It means that it's not the responsibility of the HR person. It's not the responsibility of if there's someone called a DNI consultant in your organization. It is the responsibility of leadership. And the interventions right at the start are who's at the top of the tree? Are they on board? If not, why not? And let's have a talk about that. That's the very first one. Because grassroots movements are great. And yes, we've talked about power shifts and dynamics, but at the end of the day, strategy. The financial strategy, uh, the strategy for growth, the strategy for this is what we do in this business happens at the board and at the executive table. And unless those two sets of stakeholders are fully on board, it's a tough
0: road. Mm. Yeah. So on that, the tough road, I'm kind of curious around, and it's a double-barrel question, what are the characteristics of a great leader of change in this domain and what are the minefields that they have to cross. So tell me about that tough road. And again, I've made an assumption that those two are married together. The characteristics get yep. them through the road. So tell us a bit about that. So the
1: characteristics, <clears throat> pardon me, in this in the context of whether it's inclusion, diversity, equity or Safety, as one of my other clients is is navigating at the moment, or any other, you know, whether it's a new widget being deployed in ERP, whatever it may be, the very the very first um, thing is to go. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. I actually don't know. I'm not an expert in this field. And for those of us who have professionally developed, particularly in one uh, vertical. And we are extremely expert in our craft to discover at a very senior leadership level that you are not skilled in a particular domain can be very humbling or humiliating. And that humiliation can lead to, oh, that's all right. I know what I'm talking about. And I'll just crack on regardless and I don't need to listen to anyone. So that's that's warning sign. Yep, 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 got it all, got it all, off I go. You've got to learn to sit in the uncomfortable knowledge that you're not an expert. And my own experience around that is around cultural diversity Um, Yes, I am egalitarian and I'm an inclusionist and what have you, but I have a bucket load to learn about being, continually learning more about being more inclusive of um, women and men who are black and brown, um, who do not look like me, sound like me or enjoy the privilege. And I am very, very fortunate that I have some people who I work with who provide the odd intervention on my behalf and I've got to suck that up. And know that I don't have lived experience as a black or brown person. So I need to actually listen to and learn from um, those folks. So when leaders are about to undertake this, the beginning, and it's a journey that never ends, um, when they're about to undertake a program of change to create a more inclusive workplace, the very first thing to be on the alert for on the alert for is The person who says, "Yep, yep, I know all about this." Well, if you do, why haven't you done something about that prior to now? So let's let's call BS on that for a start. Um, But also to be very, very willing to be kind and compassionate to leaders who are very, very experienced. Um, very respected, um, who have delivered outstanding results and have had a proven track record, to be very compassionate to the fact that they now find themselves in the position of low power, uh, low knowledge, and that they've got to admit that they are there and they are the people I most enjoy working with, including I can remember one of my peers at the time when when you and I were working together, Jen, when I first did some kind of courageous work in a leadership team that I was in. And this person said to me, he said, you know what, Michelle, I'm you make me feel safe to say, I don't know what I'm talking about. Can I, can you help me? Can we do this together? I gotta do more, but I actually have no idea what I'm doing. So let's do this together. And I went, awesome. Um, really good learning experience for me that I also have to be as a part of that, being a change practitioner in this domain to be kind and compassionate to those who are learning new skills. Mm-hmm. I don't I think I've gone off the track a little bit there, Jen, but that's That's
0: okay. I think that's, that was a good a learning in really, it.
1: Yeah, it's it's just so important, you know, that you cannot underestimate the the emotions that people have when they figure out that they're not very good at something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's massive, massive threat. Mm. It's a threat to them. And what it's happens when you're threatened? Right. It's fight, oh, yeah.
1: flight, well, freeze. freeze. Yep. And and you see it. You see it around leadership tables. And it's like a little bubble pops up. Oh, I know what you're doing. And I've got to be really, really tuned in to that. Really tuned in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Tell me what are three things that a leader could do tomorrow that would advance change in this space of, of gender equality um management by walking around
1: it yeah, so really um walk around difficult at the moment in, in our our, uh, our distanced uh human distance uh environment but put some different eyes on and and uh work out how you can walk around your workplace and try and walk a mile in other people's shoes the way um that leaders can do that is by inviting conversations um i must admit i have a very proud of a an ever evolving tool that i use called a five by five Um, and it's you know have have five conversations with five people who don't look like you or sound like you or have the same power as you and here are five structured here five here's a discussion guide and Listen, but prepare by being prepared to listen, being prepared to hear stuff that you might not like, and don't try and solve it. So, that would be one thing, even though there's a lot of things in that. <laughs> um, please don't ask an underrepresented person to educate you about their underrepresentation. Um, the burden mm. has got to be on you to learn. So if you're curious, please be curious, but go and learn yourself and then ask clarifying questions. Um, And and I think certainly this year around race and um, Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd murder, and being a better white person by not expecting black people to educate me has been, you know, it's a constant Uh, opportunity to learn. So, and the way you can do that is quite simply diversify the people you hang out with, diversify your Twitter feed, diversify your LinkedIn connections, diversify the books that you read or the magazines or the papers that you subscribe to. Um, And the the third thing would be to be visible with your own team. Hey team, I've had a bit of an epiphany. This is what I'm Doing personally as part of my development, you might see some changes in me or you might see me asking different questions or doing some different things. I'm going to stuff up from time to time. Tell me when I've stuffed up, but understand this is what's important to me now. And this is the the kind of pathway I'm choosing. I I invite you to go with me, but understand this is where I'm going. Be visible and vocal about what you're doing and why. That's it.
0: Mm. It would really a,
1: powerful. Yeah. It gives a lot of permission to, because yeah. let's face it, and particularly environments culturally that are moving from command and control to flatter, more egalitarian, more, um, you know, matrix style, whatever, um, cultures, It there are still people who are waiting for the boss to tell them what to do.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, yes. Give them that permission. Yeah. Uh, uh. Mm-hmm. I think it's also, you know, it's that notion of invitation. Yeah, you know, inviting inviting your team to learn with you. Yep, but also holding you accountable. Yep, you know. Um, and I think the invitation's a really good thing because no matter what um,
1: what your mindsets, current mindsets are, where you are on your own very personal um, journey around inclusion and equity. Being invited means that you are not being told what to do or what to believe. And yes, we want workplaces to accelerate their focus on inclusion, but that's inclusive in and of itself. I invite you; I'm not commanding you. Mm. But this is what's important to me. And let's, as as you and I both know, leadership casts a very long shadow. Or, less kindly, monkey see, monkey do.
0: (laughs) Oh, we could bring out all the tropes at this point. Oh, we could. we've got fish washing from the head um (laughs) are you up for some um word association oh yeah all right i'll try not to swear oh yeah i should have put the disclaimer in at the beginning of this call for my particularly for the overseas listeners the australians are probably a little bit more used to it (laughs) That uh, yeah, I don't edit these uh, these recordings, and so Michelle could drop a clangor or two. But
1: yeah, it's okay. I'll, I'll try and on my best behaviour.
0: Hey, you have done exceptionally well. We've been going for just over uh, thirty minutes, and you have not. So oh, I reckon home path, Michelle, home path. Mm-hmm. Okay, five characteristics of great change leaders. What does courage mean to you?
1: Vulnerability.
0: No, that's my next word. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, okay, let me give you another one. Um, courage means uh, having, the, <laughs> having the guts to, have, to use two ears and one mouth in proportion. Having the courage to be silent and listen. Um, having the courage, you know, what is it? Courage is not the absence of fear, but it's the ability to understand, but still say something. Um, still understand your fear, but say something. So, yeah.
0: Excellent. And now that you've primed, vulnerability?
1: Leadership. Essential to leadership. I've, I've been very, very uh, regular about my own journey with vulnerability, which will continue, but a game changer. And invulnerability is quite simply locking people out of what makes you great.
0: Mm-hmm. Empathy.
1: Well, there's a deficit of empathy. So if I was going to do one word for one word, I'd say deficit. Uh, we, uh, I, I would like to see an explosion of empathy. And empathy is not sympathy, as, as your dear listeners will know, but it's about saying, how do I walk a mile in the other person's shoes? I do do. I, I have do an exercise with my clients called walk a mile. Um, and and I want them to walk a mile in a person that isn't like them and has different life experiences to them this is where artificial intelligence is going to be wonderful for for me but um yeah uh, absolutely essential if you if you want to attract engage and advance the best and brightest people you've got to have empathy in your organization
0: powerful stuff what about curiosity <gasps> well
1: for our american um listeners, I was always known as a nosy parker. Sticky beak. You're such a sticky beak. Well, two things the Moscow reports. Sticky beak, disruptive, well three things talks too much. Now being a disruptor is a bloody good thing and being a sticky beak, being curious is even better. And combine the two, uh, when you're curious about so why is it that we do things that way? And I wonder if, I wonder if we if we tried doing it this way, what would happen? So Curiosity is the hotbed of creativity and innovation and we've got to unleash it and we've got to give people permission
0: to be curious. Wow. Okay, last one. Self-compassion.
1: When you can learn to be as nice to yourself as you are to other people you care about, um, it's it's a fairly nice place to be. It's in fact, it's a, it's a blissful place to be. I once heard a woman talk about, she said, would you talk to your your mum, your partner, your best friend, your child, the way you talk to yourself? And in my head, I went, oh, I nearly said it. Hell no, that wasn't the word I used. Um, <laughs> Hell no. And then her next question was, so why do you talk to yourself that way? And I went, God, and it was such a... a simple but profound thing for me and I thought why don't I like myself very much why don't I speak to myself very nice very nicely why don't I take care of myself and um you know when you take care of yourself it's the old oxygen mask on first I'm no good to anyone in the plane if it's you know doing whatever it's going to be doing when you need oxygen mask if I'm writhing around on the floor gasping for air. So self-compassion starts at, well, compassion starts at home. You cannot, cannot be compassionate for other people, uh, truly, really, if you're not compassionate um, towards yourself.
0: It's wonderful. Michelle, you have been extraordinarily generous with us over this time. Um, you've given way more free consulting than anybody ever deserved. What can this audience do for you? How can we serve you? Um, you can serve
1: me by really, truly thinking deeply about the stuff that I either talk about or write about. I, I really want, I want people to care more deeply about your about their colleagues about people that they don't know I want particularly want people who have power and privilege to not be ashamed of that power or privilege I have power and privilege I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white uh, apparently affluent educated woman And I'm not ashamed of that because apart from the arguably affluent, all of that other stuff has happened to me. I didn't do anything about it. But by crikey, I can use that power and privilege to make the world a better place. And I know that's really trite, but seriously, just do one nice thing every day, please. Because if every person, every adult in Australia even did one nice thing a month, it's 15 million nice things a month that would happen. In Australia. Can you imagine how different
0: our society would be? Oh, so I reckon, yeah, it'd be yeah. A bit different. Yep. Yeah. So that's what they can do. Well, thank you so much. Listeners, I will post all of Michelle's social links on the show notes and the blog post that comes out after this. Um, so uh, if you're not currently connected or following Michelle, um, you're a fool, make sure you do. It's going to be uh, life-changing for you is what I will say. Michelle Redfern, thank you so much for your time. Dr Jen, Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram. You can find many more resources on leading change at my website, drjenfram.com. I welcome feedback on what else you'd like to hear on the podcast. Why not connect with me on Twitter at Jen Fram or LinkedIn?